Good morning. So I was in a Barnes and Noble recently. Um, Barnes and Noble is kind of like Amazon if they were still a bookstore. Uh, and unlike Amazon, you have to actually put your shoes on and walk inside to buy things. It's really inconvenient, but it <laughs> smells like books and Amazon hasn't figured that out yet. And when, when you go inside, uh, there are these headings uh, above the sections to help you find what you're looking for. You know, things like history and cookbooks and teen paranormal romance. <laughs> I wasn't looking for that one. They don't have that one at our Barnes & Noble, but uh, over in the corner is a section called personal transformation and uh, personal growth. And these categories are in the realm of self-improvement or self-help. And, and there's an entire self-help industry. It, it seems like there's a really high demand for help. And people want to get that help from themselves. And that makes sense. When we're young, we're messy and we think we can fix it. And when we're old, we're messy and we don't want to tell anyone that we didn't fix it. So <laughs> self-help, right? Makes sense. I don't know about you, but what I find is that I'm not always that helpful. It turns out that myself is the guy who got me into the situations <laughs> that I want help with. You know, even when I want to do well, I want to treat people well, and I, somehow I don't. Things get messy. And Jesus knows about this problem. And so he offers a helper, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is one of the three members of what we call the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's this difficult to wrap your mind around idea that God is one but also three. In John 14, Jesus is speaking to his disciples shortly before he's going to be arrested, and he says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And a little later in the next chapter, but the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Spirit is called a Helper here, and it's worth noting that the Greek word used doesn't have the subordinate connotation that the English word Helper can have. The Spirit is your Helper, but the Spirit's not your Assistant. Right? Many times in the Old Testament, God is referred to as a helper. It's a different word, of course. The Old Testament was written mostly in Hebrew, but that word also doesn't have that subordinate kind of connotation. Uh, you know, rescuer might be another English word we would use. Do you know the first time someone is called a helper in the Bible? It's on the second page. It's Eve. Yeah, all right, it's Eve. Genesis 2, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. So in what way is Eve this non-subordinate kind of helper? Well, what was humanity's mandate from page one of the Bible? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and rule it. Without Eve, the human mission wasn't going to get anywhere. 
Adam lacked the capability to fulfill the mission on his own, but with Eve, an essential helper, it became possible. And I think that's an analogy for how the Spirit is our helper. Without Eve, the human mission cannot advance. Human life can't continue. Without the Spirit, the church of Jesus Christ cannot advance. Without the Spirit, Christian life can't continue. Pardon me. Now, hopefully, it's evident to you why Adam and Eve are critical to the fruitful and multiply and rule mission, but why do we need the Spirit's help? Jesus died on the cross and rose again, took away our sins, and saved us. If that's the case, why do we need the Spirit? In our scripture reading series, we just finished 1 Kings, and in it, the story of Israel hits its high point. Back in Genesis, God promised Abraham that his descendants would become a great nation. And when Abraham's descendants find themselves slaves in Egypt, he promises Moses that he will deliver the people into a promised place where they can become the promised nation. Eventually, they arrive and David becomes king and God promises him that his descendants will sit on Israel's throne. And so in 1 Kings, Solomon... David's son is on the throne. And let's look at the situation from 1 Kings 4. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. In 1 Kings 5, this is Solomon talking, but now the Lord my God has given me rest on every side. There is neither adversary nor misfortune. Now there's more going on here than those four short sentences led on. This is a first The chosen people of God have been going from disaster to disaster for the first 300 pages of this book. And finally, finally, they've arrived. They're in the promised land. There is plenty. There are no enemies. And they have a king, and not just any king. Solomon is described in 1 Kings 4 as having wisdom and understanding beyond measure and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of the nations. They have an absolute genius of a leader and a newly built temple. The temple is where the people can encounter God. It used to be a tent, but now it's a building and a grand one at that, a permanent, secure house of God. So the people are happy and secure. They have the best leader they could possibly have, and they have the temple of the Lord, what could go wrong? Well, back in Deuteronomy 17, God explains what Israel's king should be like. Israel's king is supposed to write out a copy of God's law and read from it every day. This is quite a bit nerdier than your typical ancient Near Eastern king. I think most of them (laughs) were into gladiators and chariot racing. But one of the things that's part of that law is this passage, which is about the king and what he shouldn't do. Deuteronomy 17, only he must not acquire many horses for himself 
or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. While 1 Kings is describing this time of peace and prosperity for Israel, it provides some details about Solomon's reign. Solomon was bringing in 50,000 pounds of gold per year, and silver was as common as rock. Now, I don't know how to do the inflation math for 3,000 years, but it's a lot of money. Solomon had 1,000 wives and concubines. And Solomon had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen and horses. And where do you think the horses were from? From Egypt. I don't know, maybe Solomon didn't write that part down, but those thousand wives and the gold and the Egyptian horses did turn Solomon's heart away, just like Deuteronomy said they would. Solomon and the entire people fall into idolatry, and the good times of 1 Kings chapter 4 are over by chapter 11. What happened? What better circumstances could there have been? I think Paul would say it was the works of the flesh, which he describes in Galatians 5. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do you think Solomon's wealth and women and military power, that's what the horses were, fed any of those works of the flesh? Were driven by any of those works of the flesh? Yes, of course. And that, that is why we need the Spirit. There is something in us, these desires of the flesh, that even when everything is in our favor, tear us down, bend us back towards broken relationships. I think that the entire Old Testament is an argument that humanity cannot save itself, no matter how favorable a situation we have. But the Spirit can oppose this critical failing. It's help, not self-help, but a helper. A helper who can do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. You see, the work of Jesus is our salvation. For those who trust Jesus, there is no condemnation. Our record of sin is removed, and Jesus' record of righteousness is ours. And it happens in an instant, a flick of a switch. But a change in our status does not remove the desires of the flesh. The Spirit does that. Now let me be clear. If you have given your life to Jesus, trusted in who he is and what he has done, and still find your heart contains jealousy, anger, divisions, do not be alarmed. This is expected. Nothing separates you from Christ. The Spirit's work is sanctification, and it's not a flick of a switch. It's a process, a process by which we become more like what Jesus has already made us, children of God. In 2015, my wife and I bought a house, and when you buy a house, you sign a bunch of papers, and when you sign the last one, it's yours. You own the house. But when does it become a home? 
We moved in with zero furniture. We ate our first meal sitting on the fireplace, and it took a while. We found furniture, and we put books on the bookshelf, and we painted our son's room, and it just took a while to feel like home. And that's what the work of spirit, what the work of the spirit is like. You're in the family of God in an instant, like owning the house, but growing into that family is a process. And I realized that analogy would work better if someone had gifted me the house, but that, that's not what happened, so I'll just explain. <laughs> Paul tells us what the work of the Spirit, the helper, looks like in our lives in Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. You know, fruit is a very important image in the Bible. The story starts in a garden of fruit trees, and it ends with a fruit tree in the middle of a new creation that is free of the desires of the flesh. So here's a practical tip. When you're reading your Bible, pay attention to the fruit Paul uses this fruit analogy to powerfully illustrate how the Spirit works in us. You know, do you have a garden, right? If you go out and pick a tomato and take it inside, can you say that you created a tomato? I mean, not really, right? If I gave you a chemistry set and said, make a tomato, you're not going to get very far. But you do have a role in how the tomato turns out. If you don't water it, if you don't pull up the weeds, you might get a tomato, but a puny one. Or you might just get a well-fed rabbit if you don't put a fence around it. <laughs> and the fruit of the Spirit is like that. We can't do for ourselves what the Spirit can do, oppose the desires of the flesh, not genuinely and not permanently at least, but we can help or hinder the Spirit's work. That's what Paul means by walking in the Spirit instead of gratifying the flesh. Paul says it a different way in Romans, Romans 8. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace and patience and kindness. Our minds move quickly, but our hearts move slowly. And our hearts move to where our minds are. If we dwell on the works of the flesh, we grow the flesh. And if we dwell on the Spirit, we clear a way for the Spirit to grow in us. The fruit analogy is helpful here again. I grew up in a rural community, a small town surrounded by farms. And many of you who are from urban areas would consider such a place unbearably boring. And it probably is. But even so, I don't know anyone who made a hobby out of watching the corn grow. That would have been too boring even for us. If you look at a corn stalk two days in a row, it's hard to tell anything's happening. If you examine your joy, your patience, your peace two days in a row, probably not much has happened. It's how fruit works. It's how our sanctification works. It's okay if you can't always see it. It's still growing. So let me summarize a little bit. The works of our flesh always lead to breakdown, even in ideal circumstances. And the Spirit has come to help, 
to do for us what we cannot do alone, to sanctify us so that we can embody by a process of walking with the Spirit what Jesus has already made true, that we are children of God and saved from our sin. Over the next nine weeks, we're going to dive deeply into the fruit of the Spirit. Do you remember what Brian said about this last week? It's the fruit of the Spirit, singular. The list of nine things are aspects of that fruit, ways that the fruit manifests in our lives. And that's important because it's not a list to pick and choose from, like you have kindness and I have self-control. No, all of these things emerge in our lives through the work of the Spirit. So let's look at the fruit of the Spirit, singular. And an immediate question I have is, Who is the fruit for? The Spirit working in you to produce these things, who is that for? Is it for you? Well, it is evidence that you are being sanctified. The life of God is growing in you and displacing the life of sin, which is no life at all. And that is of tremendous benefit to you. But is it only for you? I don't think so. These are relational words, right? Love doesn't mean much without someone else to love. Right before this passage about the fruit of the Spirit, Paul exhorts us to serve each other in love and reminds us how Jesus summarized the law, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. This entire passage is in the context of how we relate to each other. The fruit analogy is helpful a third time. The apple isn't really for the tree, right? The creatures that eat it benefit from its nourishment, but the seed in the apple... That's how we get more apple trees. When someone encounters a person who is walking with the Spirit, they can be nourished by their patience, by their gentleness, by their love. And if they haven't encountered Jesus, a seed is planted. This is what we should expect. A little yeast works its way through the whole dough. The kingdom of God is not a grassroots movement. It's a fruit tree movement. God is a helper. Jesus is a helper. The Spirit is a helper. They do for others what they cannot do for themselves. And as the Spirit matures us into what Jesus has made us, members of God's family, we join the family business. We become helpers. Last week, Brian told us there's a reason that love is the first aspect of the fruit and that we'll talk about it last. So there's some suspense for you. You can come back in nine weeks and find out why that is. But I think there's a reason that joy is second, or at least early in the list, and we are going to talk about that today. So what is joy? I'm hesitant to read dictionary entries to you. I feel like that's the realm of graduation speeches. You know, Webster's Dictionary defines achievement as, and then you're just thinking about how hot it is, and and, you're not listening anymore. So I don't want that to happen, but... We're going to talk about one word for 15 minutes. So here comes a definition. Joy, a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. So not a complicated concept. Very happy. Is that what Paul had in mind? Well, first off, Paul didn't have joy in mind, J-O-Y, because he wrote this in the 50s, not the 1950s, just the 50s. And (laughs) English wouldn't be around for like 1,200 years, right? So Paul wrote kara. And if you look kara up in an ancient Greek dictionary, it means joy. So good translating there. We don't have the whole helper, 
subtle connotation thing uh, like we had earlier. But still, does Paul mean that the work of the Spirit in you will produce very happiness in your life? I'm not saying that it won't, but the definition of joy as one end of a happiness spectrum doesn't fully capture what's happening here. And to understand what is, we need to look at how the word joy is used in the Bible. So here's some examples. I'm going to go through these kind of quickly, but just pay attention to the words joy and rejoice, which is the verb form of joy, and some of the words that are around these, right? So John 16, Jesus is, again, talking to his disciples right before he's arrested. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. First Peter, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ according to his great mercy. Pardon me. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials." From Romans, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. From Hebrews, for you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Again from Hebrews, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. From Romans, may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Second Corinthians, I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort. In all our affliction, I am overflowing with joy. James, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. And Second Corinthians again, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. In all of these examples, could you replace the word joy with very happiness? Not really, right? Trials of various kinds don't make you happy. They make you various kinds of sad. It's clear that biblical joy, the way it's used here, can coexist with trials, with difficulties, with sorrow even. It's not just happiness. But how does that work? Look at the words around joy. When joy appears in the Bible, it's often related to gratitude for what God has done, but mostly to hope for what he is going to do. So it is a very happiness, but it's a very happiness based on trust and based on hope. Now stay with me here because this is a bit complex, but I think it's important if you were to go to the self-help section at Barnes & Noble and read about joy, you'd find things like this. That happiness is dependent on external circumstances, but joy comes from within you and exists independently from your circumstances. And a lot of Christian resources will say something similar, and it's not 
exactly untrue, but if you leave it at that, just the notion that happiness is fleeting and joy is durable, you're emphasizing the nature of joy and not the source of joy. And I think, over time, you'll be tempted to think that you have to maintain joy by force of will. Every time circumstances hurt your happiness, you'll say, well, there goes my happiness, but that doesn't affect my joy because my joy isn't based on circumstances. And it becomes kind of a mantra, you know, choose joy, choose joy, choose joy. I think joy is absolutely a product of your circumstances. Just bigger, better circumstances than the ones that affect your happiness. The circumstance of your joy is that Jesus is king. The circumstance of your joy is that Jesus sits at the right hand of God interceding for you and that nothing, nothing can separate you from his love. The circumstance of your joy is that the Spirit helps you in your weakness. The circumstance of your joy is that the Spirit intercedes for you with prayers too deep for words. The circumstance of your joy is that God works all things together for your good. The circumstance of your joy is that God will wipe every tear from your eye. The circumstance of your joy is that all of this, all of this has been planned and tended and guided for you to bring you home. And that big circumstance cannot be affected by any of the things that affect your happiness. And so your joy can't be taken away. You know, I'm not sure I like the phrase, choose joy. I know the radio station is very popular, but you don't have to choose joy. Joy chose you. The spirit that is in you carries the character of God, the joy of God. Remember joy. Remember gratitude. Remember hope. The extent to which we set our minds on gratitude for what God has done and hope in what God is doing is the extent to which our heart has access to the joy that is ours in the spirit. And I think that's why joy is second in the list. Joy is the manifestation of our recognition that God is who he says he is and will do the things he has promised to do. Gratitude and hope is how we feed the spirit and not the flesh and allows the spirit and all the other aspects of the fruit to grow in our lives. Remember, church, Solomon had the temple, the presence of God among the people, but we have the spirit, the presence of God in our hearts, and that makes all the difference. When Jesus was crucified, the curtain in the temple that separated the presence of God from us tore in half from the top down. And the Bible is a book. And if you went to Barnes & Noble to find a Bible, which section should you find it in? There's a section called Bibles. It's in, it's in Bibles. But <laughs> let's say there wasn't. What section should it be in? History? Philosophy? Self-help? I think the Bible should be on the newsstand. 
Because what is news? It's a piece of information about a change in the world that affects how you live. It can be big news, like here comes a tornado, or it can be small news, like a highway is closed. But either way, big or small, you have to decide how this change in the world affects how you live. And this book contains a critical piece of news, that Jesus is king, and he reigns over God, the kingdom of God, and that a helper is here who can oppose the force that has caused so much destruction in our world, the desires of the flesh. And that all you need to do to join that kingdom is to take Jesus' outstretched hand and follow him. It's good news, not good advice. Jesus doesn't have 10 steps to help us increase our joy. Jesus has an announcement that the author of joy wants to plant it in your heart if you'll trust that he can. This is the fourth sermon I've done here and the one that I'm the least confident about because I wasn't sure I was qualified to talk about joy. Now, some of that is my personality. I'm not known for my exuberance, <laughs> right? And I'm, and I'm sure someone has been thinking, why did they get this guy for joy? I mean, I wasn't even sure he was going to talk about it there for a while. And also, Brian is, is like right over there. I mean, can you imagine what a Brian Joy sermon would be like? There'd be singing, dancing, jazz piano, and maybe, just maybe, Kelly Clarkson would be here. And you're right. I would like to see that too. But, you know, it's not just my demeanor or even mostly. It's that since I've been a little kid, I have struggled with worry and depression and anxiety. And those things, especially anxiety, feel like the opposite of joy, right? As joy is to hope, anxiety is to despair. It doesn't care about circumstances. It just drags you down. And, you know, the question, what could go wrong, the list of answers just gets longer and longer, right? So what I can tell you about joy, my testimony to you is that in all of that, all of that, anxiety. For me, there has been this small voice under it, more real than it, that says it will be okay. And friends, I don't know where that could come from, except that I'm being helped, that something is growing in me, the spirit is growing in me. And so joy can be a crescendo and it can be a parade and a backflips and uplifted hands. And that is lovely. But joy can also be a lighthouse beam that penetrates the dark and the fog and keeps you off the rocks. And that is lovely too. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are there's so much we cannot do on our own. And you provided so many ways that we can be close to you. Father, may your spirit be here now with us, reminding us 
of all the things we have to be grateful for, reminding us of all your promises, all the things we have to hope in. Thank you, Lord, for Jesus. That he was tempted but did not give in to the flesh. That he trusts you completely. And that our record of trusting the flesh fell on him instead of us. And his record of trusting you is ours. And that's hard to understand. But the Spirit ministers to us, and thank you for that. Help us to call to mind all the things our Lord Jesus has said. Thank you, Lord. You are good. We know that it will be okay because you have said it will be okay. In Jesus' name, amen.